Hello and welcome to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. I am your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT with the Kirkland Fire Department located just outside of Seattle, Washington. I am excited to introduce my guest for today's episode, Marcus Harrison Green. Marcus is a publisher, author, speaker, podcaster, columnist for the Seattle Times, and founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald, a community-based news site whose mission is to amplify the authentic narratives of South Seattle. He was awarded the Seattle Human Rights Commission's Individual Human Rights Leader Award for 2020. Marcus and I discuss his personal journey that led him to leave behind a career in investment banking and return to his native South Seattle to pursue his passion for journalism and share stories from the community where he was raised. It was a joy speaking with Marcus. We talk about his career in journalism, his upcoming book release, and also Marcus's own struggles with mental health. Marcus is purpose-driven and open and real in conversation, and I found it inspiring to speak with him. Lastly, South Seattle Emerald just so happens to be celebrating its seventh birthday on April 29th, the day after the release of this particular episode. So I'd like to wish a happy birthday to Marcus and his amazing team at the South Seattle Emerald. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome, Marcus, and thank you so much for joining me today. I just want to say, Ryan, it is such a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, what you do, man, is, it, you know, as a fire professional, is, is that, is that like the, is that the correct term? I, you know, I know everybody is. It is, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. A, a firefighter, I guess you could call it a career <laughs> firefighter. They're sometimes broken into volunteer slash career. So yes, that is my career. And well, I appreciate it. And it's great to have you here. I mean, I guess we should actually start, I should backtrack here a little bit for our listeners on how you and I connected. We've flipped roles here because you actually interviewed me a couple of weeks ago as part of a project being uh, put on with the Gates Foundation, and yes, I guess yeah. the South Seattle Emerald uh, yeah. is doing these stories. So why don't you share a little bit about that project, and let's tell our listeners how you and I even first connected. So, like, I, I guess most great things, well, well depending on, you know, um, your opinion of them, I guess, you know, Bill Gates, you know, bringing people together, as he always does. Uh, <laughs> no, the, uh, um, yeah, doing a project with the Gates Foundation um, that the South Seattle Emerald has partnered with uh, to essentially spotlight and feature heroes uh for uh you know i think it's appropriate term um uh, of, of folks who have uh, really been dealing with uh you know this pandemic and, and really you know helping out community building community um during the COVID 19 pandemic and um you uh as modest as i'm sure you are you uh were actually one of the people who were <laughs> featured in in this exhibit which i believe will be launching in some at some point in the summertime um so definitely people should continue to watch out for that I was honored to be a part of that, and it seems like a cool thing. How did the South Seattle Emerald get involved in that project? What was the connection there with the Gates Foundation? Yeah, so the, the Gates Foundation reached out to us. Uh, they're uh, like a fan of some of the work that we had been doing um, and profiling certain people, and especially during the pandemic, because I believe they wanted to focus on um, you know marginalized communities and communities of color, um, mm-hmm. and that's certainly what sort of our forte uh, has been in in uh, the past and, and, and is currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they thought it'd be great to, to partner with a local organization. Um, and we still happen to, to fit their bill. So it's been a good partnership so far. What led you to start the South Seattle Emerald and really focus on the community in which you were raised in, I believe, right? You're a, yeah, I'm one of those, you're a South those, Seattle native. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm one of those, uh, I guess, rare uh, unicorns to uh, <laughs> folks that, you know, elder millennials, I guess I, I would be, that uh, was actually born and raised here in, in Seattle and um, actually grew up in South mm-hmm. Seattle 
um, in the Rainier Beach area. Okay. Um, you know, and, and growing up there, it, you know, it, it, it was kind of a media desert in, in the sense of what was reported on in the area, right? It, it, it sort of was very one dimensionally uh, focused on. It, it was, you know, there would be crime, there would be uh, urban blight. You know, sometimes they would talk about Rainier mm-hmm. Beach basketball, but you had to, you know, picture, right? Right. This was this place that at, at the time that I was growing up, it had three of the top 10 most diverse zip codes in the United States, man. So, I mean, you got, you know, something like 60 different ethnicities. You have 80 something different languages that are spoken there, right? There's this, just this wonderful collision of, of culture and, and this, you yeah. know, this sort of rich life that's there that, you know, growing up, you experienced, right. But you didn't necessarily see captured in our media. And I just really, really wanted to showcase uh, media that, and storytelling, I should say that, that really was more reflective of, uh, you know, our, our slice of of the city. And, and, you know, it isn't to say, right. that, That bad things don't happen there. I mean, but bad things happen everywhere. Right. And, but the unique things that happen mm-hmm. there when you have so many different people from so many different walks of life, I think, you know, were, were worth reporting on. And and as I say, it's not, you know, when you're trying to counterbalance some of the tragic stories that, that are, you know, uh, headline news and certainly broadcast news um, where they're sort of uh, looking for the low hanging fruit, as you call it, as crime reporters and so forth. Yeah. The opposite of that isn't necessarily just, you know, sugary, calorie free, so to speak, you know, stories that are, you um, you know, you, where you bury your head in the sand. The, the opposite of that is a multi-dimensionality and um, nuance and complexity, and, and being able to show people and all their their human worth. And I think that's you know what we try to do at the Emerald, and and that's you know was a long way to to say that that's why I started it. No, I love that. And how long ago did you start that? Yeah, so it'll be uh, seven years, April 29th. Um, so uh, fast approaching, you know, and sometimes I got to tell you, it feels like 70 years out here, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's, um, it, you know, definitely um, was worth it and it continues to be worth it. What are some of the highs and lows you've experienced in those seven years? Yeah. What, what, what uh, has what has kind of gone the way that you thought and anticipated and hoped and dreamed of? You must've had a vision when you started this of being able to share these stories from the neighborhood in which you grew up in, as you just talked about. So what are some of those highlights? And then I guess secondary to that, (laughs) what are some things that have kind of blindsided you and like, Oh man, I did not expect that. Well, there's been a lot of both I say in, in this um, industry, just in general, you know, there's, there's multiple vicissitudes, (laughs) um, you know, day in and day out. Uh, I will say that it's, it's sort of led me to, to more of, you know, capital S stoicism, if you will, in terms of, Mm-hmm. Um, focusing on things you can control and, and trying to uh, not be emotionally attached to the things you can't necessarily. Um, and I, you know, meet that with, you know, mixed success sometimes. I think that, you know, the highest of the highs have been, you know, the response from the community. Uh, you know, when you get people who say, thank you so much for doing a piece on, on me or my son or my family member who really showed us, you know, in, in more, uh, more um, nuanced and humane light, the, the lows have just kind of been, you know, media in general, right, is, is generally been a uh, industry, especially as of late, that isn't necessarily a yeah. uh, <laughs> boom industry when it comes to, uh, sure. uh, you know, when it, when it comes to financially, unless, you know, Jeff Bezos is buying you, I guess. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I mean, those seven years, it, you know, it had been a, a struggle uh, financially for, a, uh, for a, you know, a, a good, you know, a good portion of it, you know, especially those first five years. And, you, you know, you're just you're struggling month to month to make sure that you can make payroll. You're struggling um, to make sure that your 
uh, also doing okay. And it takes a lot of sacrifice. You know, it's, um, there's, uh, I'm a big fan of Marcus Aurelius, the, the Roman emperor slash philosopher. Mm-hmm. And he said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, leaders, uh, suffer first and eat last. And, um, it's been a, it's been a lot of years of doing that, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, up mm-hmm. to this year. And so, um, yeah. which wasn't always the easiest thing, but, um, again, you know, somehow we would, just always managed to survive. And and a lot of it just came with the support of the community. And, um, you know, we're we're in a much better position um, than we were last year. Uh, A lot of that is kind of due to, uh, quite frankly, um, the the uprisings and and sort of uh, racial conversations that have been happening, excuse me, Mm -hmm. I should say the national conversations that have been happening around race in light of George Floyd. And so we we got, you know, plenty of of donations uh, during that time period. And are just doing what we can to continue to sustain and keep going. Well, let me ask you about that. You talked about a lot of the coverage around race relations here over the past year, and you're also a columnist for the Seattle Times. Do you feel as though mainstream media mm-hmm. has been giving more focus and attention uh, to a lot of these inequalities and to the communities in which you've focused on yourself with your work? Do you see more fair coverage for lack of a better term <laughs> in mainstream media than you used to up until this prior uh, year. Uh, largely I think so. Um, that being said, right. It's hard to get too excited um, in the sense that, you know, you, you know, you've been, I've been at this for more than a decade in terms of, uh, you know, in this profession. And so, you know, you see it come in waves, right. I mean, there were situations where obviously other situations where somebody, where African-American was, was killed in a very high profile setting or situation. And, you know, news media followed suit in terms of trying to be better about their coverage, quote unquote, and, and this and that. And mm-hmm. then it kind of dies down a little bit after, you know, when there's some emotional dis- distance from, you know, the incident that happened. And so I continue to ex- sort of wonder if, <laughs> you know, that type of coverage will continue or if things have systemically changed that, but, um, in, in terms of media coverage. That being said, though, you know, I mean, you have places like the Kansas City Star coming out and apologizing for, you know, 150 years of how they treated <laughs> the black community and, and communities of yeah. color, right? I mean, that yeah. probably wouldn't have happened, you know, had there not been some level of, of, of a shift in that, you know, in those newsrooms or at least some level of consciousness about, you know, maybe, you know, things needed to, to, to change and, and, you know, coverage going forward needed to change. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, you would call me cautiously optimistic uh, <laughs> about news coverage in general at the mainstream changing. What's your biggest frustration typically from mainstream uh, media? I think uh, the nature of the business is kind of to, and, and I shouldn't say not just the business, but I think just nowadays, right, it, it's to move towards the fast story as opposed to the full mm-hmm. story. And, you know, in I think when you don't have all of the answers or, or know what's going on in a situation, I, I think human beings are, pr- we're just prone to right try to fill in the gaps with our own bias and, and our own sort of experiences and knowing that the, and those experiences many times are incomplete and, and, and sometimes our bias are unacknowledged. And I think many times, you know, that happens in um, you no know, coverage, especially of, of marginalized communities, you know, I'm thinking of, of time periods where uh, I remember one story maybe five years ago where there's a, a man, his name was uh, Michael, excuse me, his name was, uh, yeah, his name was Michael Flowers. And he was killed in a, um, 
when somebody invaded his apartment. And I just remember some of the stories that, you know, proliferated about him in the news, mainstream news media. And it was almost as if (laughs) written as if, right, he deserves to die because he had had a a gun charge, you know, 10 years prior to the day he was killed. And, um, you know, within within that span of 10 years, he had lived another life, right? I mean, he had, uh, you know, been a a basketball coach. He had uh, been a tutor. He had been, you know, so many other things. Um, And he was so many other things. He was a father. He was a son. He was a friend. And, And those type of things get lost when you're just, rushing to get a story out and and sort of relaying something that you found in the a police blotter as opposed to trying to take time for a story. But, right, I mean, I, I think, you know, most um, mainstream news people would tell you, well, you know, I, I, they didn't want to wait a week to talk to the um, family or, or what have you um, who were, you know, grieving and don't want to necessarily talk to the media within the span of five or, you know, the span of a day or so of their or hours of their loved one being killed. And I, and I get it. You know, I've, I've had to reach out to, to families before uh, when a loved one had, had died. And there had been times where, like, as a news media, uh, as a journalist, I was the one letting them know that their loved one had died. Right. Um, oh, man. And it is. I'll tell you, man, it is like one of the worst That's feelings in the world. Right? Be in, huh? Yeah. You yeah. feel very vulturistic. And I think the term would be. Well, with so much, with just fast media and news cycles changing so quick and social media to stay out in front, that I, I get that. That makes sense. But that's yeah. still a difficult thing. It's just really interesting, that story you shared, too, about the gentleman that was shot and had a had a, what a weapons charge a decade prior and had right. done so much to, uh, to be involved in the community. And it's almost as though it doesn't give somebody the opportunity for a second chance. Our art of change, right? I mean, our, our, you know, and, and yeah. to acknowledge, right, that human beings are, are extremely flawed, yeah. right? And we have issues, right? And, but we can also, we can also change. And I think, you know, as, as I remember talking to the man's mother, uh, Michael's mother, Mary Flowers, and she said, you know, I didn't need my son to be presented as a saint. He wasn't. I needed him to be presented mm-hmm. as a human being because that's what he was. And I mean, it's just that simple. And which is why when you talk about the biggest frustration, I, and I, I don't know how to fix this, but I almost think because our world moves so fast, because you have uh, social media that, you know, it, where truly a, a lie can be halfway around the world before it's true, before the truth gets its uh, shoes on to quote an old line. I think we need to almost be, we in the media and, you know, mainstream, non-mainstream need to almost just be, I think, more deliberate. Uh, uh, and and sl- I don't want to call it slow news, but maybe just more methodical mm-hmm. news or, or intentional news than um, than what we you know are traditionally are here. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about DEI, Marcus, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel like this is a pretty hot button topic right now. Speaking to you as a black man, mm-hmm. what does DEI mean to you, and why are they so important? especially in today's environment? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, DEI, I think, is, is obviously important, but I think even more important is, is a level of equity, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I look at it in, um, you know, speaking from the vantage point of a journalist, um, knowing, you know, that this field is predominantly white and it's predominantly male. I think the last report I saw was maybe 62 to 63% male and um, something like 82% white, right? And this is the field of journalism, yeah, journalism specifically. Yeah, it's you're speaking of yeah, yeah. specifically journalism, and you know, uh, and so obviously, I'll say right that um, it needs to have you know more people of color in there, and that that is more reflective, right, of the 
of the country we live in, quite frankly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just if we could just map yeah. on to the country, I think you could, uh, we would, quite frankly, I think have fewer stories that, um, uh, that anger and are insensitive uh, towards communities of color. That, that being said, though, I think where the equity comes in, right, is that you can't just be hiring people, right, as, as janitors and, and beat reporters and keep them there, you know, for 25 years while, you know, somebody who <laughs> is perhaps less qualified um, continues to be promoted over them. And, and, and where, when you look at the, a place's power structure, um, at the top are still the same old, same people, right? Which are, you know, predominantly white, predominantly male. Uh, no, no offense, Ryan. I mean, you're a great guy. I'm just saying. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> right. no, but yeah, it's, no, that no, I hear you. That's it's the reality of the situation. Yeah, and and I think that's where you know equity yeah. can can come in. It's like ultimately, okay, giving jobs to people is one thing, which is which is great, and that's one half of the equation. Giving power to people is another thing, and that's another half of the mm-hmm. equation. And I think that's just harder to do sometimes, you know. Um, I, you know, you look at, uh, I think his name's Dean Bouquet at uh, the New York Times, and some people love him, some people hate him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. um, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, I mean, I think they have made certain changes uh, that are, that have probably benefited uh, them and their, and their readership as a whole in, in regards to equity and, and DEI training. Yeah. How do you... How do you put that into practice? Because again, I know that is talked about a lot, and I I love what you said about okay, it's one thing hiring a minority, a person of color, uh, a female, whatever. As you right. said, it's predominantly white males that still run uh, you know the industry that you work in, and I know this is a problem, especially in sports. Right. You, know, you look at the Rooney Rule in the NFL, and it's in place that every team is in essence required to interview a person of color or. A minority individual. However, that just seems to get glossed over so quick. It's almost this yeah. <laughs> token interview that really the owner has no plans of ever actually hiring. Right. I think that individual was individual as coach. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I think that just you know? brought up, got brought up with the Kansas City Chiefs um, offensive coordinator, who was like I think ten yeah, or twelve yeah. different interviews without any, you know, without yeah, any Eric, serious Eric Bieniemy. Yeah. Eric Bieniemy. Right. Yeah, and that guy is a stud, and he's. Yeah. I mean, look at the Chiefs' offense; it's one of the most potent in the NFL, if not the most potent. So, if if, if he can't get a chance, who can? And by all accounts, players love him. Right. Uh, the other coaches love him. So that just seems to me. I feel like this comes up every year of this rule being acknowledged, kind of, but not really being put into practice put in a player not that you have the answer to this i don't know that anyone does but how do we how do we change that how do we then actually make it something that's tangible actually enacting change and uh, putting people from black and brown communities and marginalized communities in these positions of power how do we do that yeah i think whatever efforts people have and whatever level it is whether it's journalism whether it's sports whether it's uh i don't i don't know um spd whether it's uh Amazon, you know, obviously the tech industry, as you mentioned, is uh, it also has yeah. a diversity problem, a major diversity problem. Yeah. Um, whatever efforts that you do have in these organizations or, or fields, there has to be some level. Of, there has to be some teeth to them, right? I mean, there has to be some level of consequence, yeah. right? I mean, I think it's just human nature, right? Human beings don't. As much as I wish that we changed, because we just had some grand epiphany that we need to do better. We mostly change, right? <laughs> because of incentives or tragedy or, you know, something mm-hmm. bad happening, right? It's, uh, yeah. I, um, you know, for instance, yeah, I, you know, not, not getting too, uh, bogged down into this issue, but, um, you know, I think about 
the situation that happened with uh, Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, right? And how, you know, Roger mm-hmm. Goodell, he, he wouldn't say anything for a long time, period. And then when um, the George Floyd situation happened, he, I, I believe he actually ended up apologizing to, to Colin Kaepernick saying, oh, you were right. There was literally nothing that fundamentally changed about the NFL other than <laughs> if yeah. some of its, you know, its players started to come out more and more and its fans started to mm-hmm. come out more and more and say, why are you not doing anything? And so um, I think, again, you know, I mean, I think that's an example of you have to feel some level of sting in order uh, to uh, truly enact some level of change. And I mean, and, you know, and you can argue that the, the NFL's some of the issues are excuse me, some of the initiatives that they've done aren't good enough or, or you know, other people will say that they they're making progress. But either way. Right. I mean, they they have done something. And, and I think that was a direct reaction um, of, you know, uh, of quite frankly feeling the sting from their players and fans what industry or corporation or field gets this right more than others is is there one is there any is there any organization or company or industry that that stands out to you as like okay they're they're doing it right <laughs> Honestly, right. You may not, not be right. Really. I don't know. I, I just, I I just didn't know if there was anything. I, uh, I didn't know if there's anything I mean, off the I, top I, of your head that's like you know, if everyone could emulate this particular right, uh, I, CEO or this particular organization, and I, I just curious more so if there was. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, they're, they're on a micro level, right? There might be some. Uh, I don't know, some, some grocery store or some, <laughs> you know, or some, uh, 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 you know, co-op or some, um, you know, benevolent uh, uh, owner somewhere who, who may, I mean, I, 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 I just think though, right. The most important thing is, is sort of looking at things via sort of societal lens and, and in, in the industries that, um, that really drive our economy. And if you, you know, you look at tech, you look at, uh, you know, you, you you look at even you know journalism in terms of uh, it's the driver of our you know narratives here in, in our society, um, and you look at many of our social services, and I think it's very hard to uh, look at any of those uh, fields and say that and not see that there's a disproportionate amount of uh, folks of color who aren't in those fields, right? And so yeah. it's very hard to sort of. Uh, pat the back of anybody and uh, any, you know, one sort of field or, or organization. I think, again, this is a societal issue that we need to continue to address. And I think we need to look at our, you know, very, very much our power centers and then power dynamics. Um, you know, I mean, heck, you look at Congress, right? And it's as diverse as we are as a society, you're very limited in terms of the folks who are making the power on, you know, on whatever side of the issue that you're on. And I think it's yeah. very much important to have as much lived experience of multiplicity of people as you can when it, when it comes to those type of things. Um, and that goes for, uh, you know, politics as it does for um, our corporate boardrooms. You know, it's interesting. I see if I can find this. It was my, uh, a good friend of mine who actually was my very first guest. Ah on this podcast and he's a he's a doctor but you talk about the congress and if you look at our diversity as a whole as a society and then you have so few making these decisions that don't necessarily represent and this was just on a text thread with some buddies but i thought he i thought he put it pretty well the last part of his text said there are there are few public policy issues where such an overwhelming majority of americans want some reform and yet the limitation to that reform rests in the hands of so few. Yeah. I was like, God, that's so true. I mean, we had such a small few people that are making these, well, and even, these changes and rules for, yeah. for, for so many that 
you know? Well, even if you, yeah. And I mean, if you want to even take it by profession, right? I mean, I think it's something like 80% of uh, our lawmakers are uh, were formerly lawyers or, or went to law school. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. where are the, I think mm-hmm. it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, natural physicist who said this, well, you know, where are the teachers? Where are the, where are the firefighters, yeah. right? Where are the artists? Where, I mean, can we, <laughs> can we get a little, you know, yeah. just a larger sample size maybe? So, yeah. That is so true. That is the predominant background of virtually every politician out there. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, what topics and subject matters are you most passionate about covering? Yeah, uh, I'll say it's 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 kind of ended up that uh, a, a lot of the things that I cover are around um, juvenile justice, uh, mm. our child welfare system, um, uh, gun violence, um, you know, and, and equity issues. And, and I think also trying to um, to talk about a, a power dynamics as well in our society. Um, and I think, you know, also I'll say instructive philosophy, maybe for lack of a better term. Um, I, I hate the word, you know, self-help <laughs> or the phrase, I guess, uh, self-help. Yeah. But uh, certainly a fan of people like um, uh, Ryan Holiday and uh, Adrian Marie Brown and Brene Brown and, and folks like that who have, uh, you know, tried their best to, uh, or I should say, have made it sort of their uh, profession um, to try to uh, help others, you know, along their, their life's journey and life's path. And, um, so I try to do that. And, um, and also I'll say, you know, definitely I, I write a lot about mental health, uh, mainly because I am a person who's, who's in that community. I, I've, uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder about, uh, I guess three years okay. ago now, um, accepted it two years ago and, um, uh, you know, March 30th, uh, not sure when this, uh, when this will actually air, but, uh, March 30th is, uh, international bipolar, uh, day. So, uh, certainly, We'll be writing about that as well. Um, Mental health is such a, uh, that's a topic that I really care deeply about. And primarily from my profession as a firefighter, I, I, I think it's impact so many uh, people, so, so many of the calls that we go on. Uh, there's often a mental health component to a lot of underlying issues. I feel like I've seen an uptick. Uh, in uh, mental health and people really struggling with this pandemic and isolation and especially with young teens. Yeah. I, uh, drugs. I mean, so it is like, so talk to me about that journey a little bit. I I don't know how comfortable you are sharing all of this. Yeah. I've been, uh, really open about it with, with my writing and, um, and, and everything else. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, three three years ago, uh, I, I should say that you know it's something that it ran in my family. My aunt had it, and, and she unfortunately um, left it untreated for quite some time, and she mm. ended up uh, taking her own life when I was uh, four years old. Um, oh, and uh, my grandfather as well had it, and he sort of uh, mat- maternal grandfather had it as well, and he ended up drinking himself to death. And so it was, yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those things that was very hard to. Uh, uh, to one except, right. I mean, I, I think, uh, when one of the reasons, uh, you know, um, that it is so hard to accept is that I think, you know, like, like most people, I, I sort of buy into the narrative, right. That you just, <laughs> you, you try to suck it up and you handle whatever situation you can handle. I mean, that's, it's a little hard though, when you it's, when it's, you find that you can't regulate your emotions. I mean, it's, uh, for those mm-hmm. who don't know, bipolar disorder, 
I guess the simplest way to explain it would be sort of like a diabetic who can't necessarily uh, regulate right their, their blood sugar. And there's no amount of willpower that's going to, <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, and um, uh, quite frankly, to be honest with you, Ryan, I mean, I was, I know we'll talk about bravery later on in the podcast, but I, yeah. I was scared, man. I mean, it's, uh, you're like, you're reading more and more about it. You're reading about some of the stigmas people still have a, about bipolar yeah. disorder and you're reading that it's a lifelong condition that they, you know, and you're going to have to potentially take lithium and, and other um, medications for that, that could, you know, maybe dull uh, your creativity, which is important to me as a, as a writer, obviously, and sure. an artist. And, um, and that also you got to, you know, when you go on dates, you got to explain this to people as well, which is, uh, yeah. you know, has been hard, man. I mean, I, I tell you, there are times where I'm on dates with people and things are going super well. And then, uh, you know, the next <laughs> looks like it's going to go somewhere. And so I'm like, hey, yeah. I just want you to know um, that, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and you don't get that second date. And it's, um, right. you know, it's, it hasn't always been the easiest issue or easiest uh, scenario to handle, but it's. You know, I mean, I think it's one of those things where you just you, you try to, again, realize the things that you have control over and the things you don't, you don't. And realize that, it, uh, you know, you, by telling my story, at least I hope to tell it, um, you know, as often as I can, that you can help somebody else to, to sort of come out and deal with it and to realize that, look, it is going to be a struggle. But, you know, with with friends, with community, with constantly speaking your truth, as they say. Uh, this is something that you can endure and, and live with. And, and I'll, tell you, to, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it is everything you can do to just endure it in a day. But um, you know, that day is still worth it. You know, first off, thanks for your courage in sharing that not only with me, but in being so open with it. And I do think the more that people are open about mental health, the less of a stigma there is. And there really shouldn't be. There's so many other, you know, if you think of physical health, no one even gives it a second thought of, Oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta work on this or that. And uh, so the mental aspect of that, I I think needs to be given just so much more attention. And I do think luckily, I think it seems to be getting better, but as someone that deals with this yourself, I'm sure you recognize that we're not there and you just, you know, shared some of those stories of your personal life and uh, potentially dating and the impact that that can have. And when you were diagnosed, you said it took you about a year to accept. What was that year like? Was it just because you just almost wanted to ignore it and not believe it, even because you had family history of it, as you said, was it seeing what a kind of the end result of what that did to some of your family members or just thinking that you were strong enough to be able to handle it on your own? What was, I'm just curious what that thought process was that took you from that diagnosis until you finally did accept yeah. this as part of your life and part of your being. Yeah, it was kind of all the above, Ryan, but I, I think also, right. I mean, is denial is always the first thing, mm-hmm. right. And it's like, mm-hmm. because to me, uh, when I first and look, I, I went to three different people and they all said the same thing. Yeah, right. And so yeah. it's like, okay, this is probably, um, it was literally that your life was going to change. My life was going to change and I didn't want necessarily my life to change. Right. And I didn't want to, um, and at that point period in my life, um, I was kind of, you know, a control freak. Right. I, uh, and, and, you know, it, and I viewed that as a sentence almost of, Oh, this means you're weak, right? This means you're not going to be able to to do X, Y, and Z. This means, yeah. um, 
And, you know, I, 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 it's, I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I mean, at the time I was like, oh, this means I'm crazy. Right. And this means that it's going to be harder to love me. Um, it means it's going to be harder to raise the families. It just means it's going to be harder to be a good person. Right. I, I just, you know, this whole sort of spiral of woe is me. And I, I didn't want to do that. And so as things, to be quite frank with you, I mean, as things started to sort of uh, <laughs> regress that year, um, yeah. you know, emotionally, mentally, everything sure. else. Um, sure. You know, there's a lot of self-medication, man. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, drinking a lot of abuse yeah. of drugs yeah. and um yeah. it was just uh, not a healthy time period for me and i remember at the time you know being um you know it was an anniversary party for the emerald um i think it was a fourth anniversary fourth year anniversary party or what have you and mm-hmm. there's just a tons of people over at this place called the royal room in columbia city we're having you know music and everything's going around and Everybody's coming there to shake my hand and congratulate congratulate me. And I just remember being there's a ton of people surrounded, and you think it's the happiest moment of my life. And I just remember being mm. so alone and just numb, and just thinking yeah. that I need to, <laughs> you know, like I I just didn't want to live anymore, almost. And um, you know, uh, and so I, you know, I'd written been open about this before in, in some essays, but I had uh, you know tried to take my own life, man, and. Um, I remember being in uh, the hospital and uh, my mother uh, just saying, uh, can you try to love yourself for me? And uh, oh, just said, I, I'll, I'll try, mom, because I have, you know, I haven't been, you know. Um, and then from that day forward, man, it, it was, you know, I took uh, I took a leave. Um, I left the Emerald and, um, I, you know, transitioned to to be an employee of the Seattle times. And, and, okay. and a part of that honestly was just the, the stress from <laughs> running a publication by, you know, by yourself at that time, yeah, I thought, yeah. you know, um, just a change would, would help me to heal a little bit and, and to get my life, quite frankly, my life together. And in that spiral, I was going in, I heard a lot of people and it took me a while to repair some of those relationships. And to be you know frank with you, you know, some of those relationships haven't, um, repaired, you know, some of, uh, some people have forgiven, but not forgotten. And, and then there's some people I just had to myself walk away from. And so it's, it's like anything, man, you, you know, you just can continue to try to learn. Um, you continue to try to, to know what it means to love yourself. You, you also mm-hmm. continue to, to live and, and endure with what kind of where you're at right now. Right. And I always just go back. Um, I think it's, it's a quote by the evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins. And he talks about how, uh, that there are, more ways your genome could have been sequenced so that you could have, you know, existed as a different person, right? That, that there could be poets greater than Shakespeare and, and, and people more handsome than the rock or whatever are, are you are even more handsome than you, Ryan, I guess. No, but, uh, <laughs> plenty, no, plenty of those uh, exist. But, but, uh, but right. It's, uh, but you exist as you are right now, right? Yeah. There, there's, you exist as you are. Um, uh, and you know, there, there's still, uh, there's like a, there's a miracle in that, right? There's a miracle in existing as you are. And there's a miracle to be able to, you know, with bipolar disorder, I think it's Mae Jameson who says that you're able to, to you know, love deeper than most people and mm. feel deeper than most people yeah. and sense things deeper than most people, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes, you know, that's, and in some ways that can be a superpower, right? It's Absolutely, uh, maybe a it gift can. and a curse, but uh, yeah, yeah. Man, that's some powerful stuff. I love that about loving who you are. And I guess coming to 
acceptance of who you are. And I think that is a powerful message for all of us. If we can all love ourselves, then that probably creates healing amongst everybody. You know, it's hard to, hard to love anyone else until you can love yourself. Yeah. I've I've come to, yeah, I come to go, I come to uh, repeat this, uh, uh, sort of mantra, you know, there's, there's a whole thing where hurt people hurt people, mm. but I also think, right. The, the opposite of that can be maybe healed people, heal people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. well, you can, you're, you're in a position to, as you said, to impact change. I mean, you know, hurt people, hurt people and healed people, heal people. Absolutely. You've walked, <laughs> you've walked in those shoes. You've been there, you know, it, you can speak from the, from the heart and from a, a point of truth about that, man. That's a, uh, that's powerful stuff, man. I appreciate you sharing. No, I appreciate you asking. And, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, uh, I forget, I think it's uh, Clint Eastwood says in that, that Josie Wells movie that, uh, you know, dying ain't much of a living. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, I got to, you know, it's, I, I got this one life, you know. Do you have a different um, shift in focus since all of this has taken place and maybe a shift in purpose? And especially you said you tried to take your own life, you mm. woke up in the hospital do you feel as though you have been given a second chance? Do you live life differently since that experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, certainly less uh, given over to the superficial, I think, mm. um, and, and more um, focused on the things that matter in life. Um, I also, I think, you know, less concerned about things that quite frankly don't matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, to, you know, it's, uh, as a journalist, I, I get a ton of, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, the comment section of the Seattle Times yeah. sometimes, but it's sure. not, not the most, <laughs> yeah. I was just say it's not, not the most civic <laughs> discourse at times. And especially when it comes to, um, you know, journalists who are uh, folks of color and, you know, I used to really let that type of stuff grade on me. Yeah. I used to let the comments from Twitter shows grade on me. I used to let, you know, quote unquote, small, um, slights or whatever great on me mm-hmm. and, and, and be very just lay away on me and now it's not that anymore you know I think and I also think I have more of a, a my values and, and standards come they're more internal right as opposed to external right it's it's more of like all I can control is doing the work that I do I can't necessarily control how the world will yeah. appreciate it or not I can't you know control if it gets 50,000 likes or it'll get, you know, yeah. five likes and four of them are from my mother from different accounts. Right? <laughs> I, uh, you know, that's all I can control. And so just trying that, that whole sort of, you know, that, that Latin, I think the term memento mori, right. Remembering that I'm going to, to die one day. So that means that my life right now, it can be infused with life, right. Try to live as if the day were here, as, as Nietzsche would say. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what I try to do now. And you, you know, and it's the focusing on, on what matters. And so, and the things that, that don't, you just let be. And I think it's very much, you know, a very liberating feeling. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and so many times you talk about those comments and this and that. So many times people's, how people react is more of a, uh, more of an indictment or more of an assessment to them than it is yes. you. Yes. Even though it's, look, guilty as charged as far as taking stuff personally and obsessing about that. <laughs> I mean, so it's a hard thing to do. It's a, just human nature. But I do think there is yeah. something to remind yourself that's oftentimes that it is more a reflection of that person than it is of who it's being directed. Yeah. At, you know? But, yeah. Yeah. I've learned if I don't, if the person doesn't know me personally, I try not to take it personally. Yeah. So that's yeah. that. Yeah. Rule of thumb. All right, Marcus, what do you look for as a journalist in your subject matter? And what do you think about when you're trying to convey a message, a story to your audience? 
Yeah, I think I try to go, I remember a mentor of mine said once, you try to go to where the darkness is, right? To In terms of, so that you can bring light to it. Mm. So you try to go to an issue that isn't necessarily um, in, you know, the public consciousness that it potentially needs to be, or at least in your assessment, it needs to be. And, and a recent example of that is uh, I did a story for the Seattle Times and Emerald about uh, kinship caregivers. And so their grandmother's who are raising their grandchildren. They're the primary mm-hmm. caregiver. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are women who are 76, 77 years yeah. old, yeah. raising, you know, 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds. You know, they, they need the energy of a 30-year-old yeah. uh, to, you know, try to, you know, keep up with somebody who has the attention span of a lightning bolt, and yet they're 70. And um, they don't quite get the same level of support um, as, you know, foster care parents. They don't... Um, and quite frankly, I mean, there there are more of them than there are foster care parents, and uh, you know, and a part of the reason that they didn't get as much financial support is sort of, uh, I mean, some of it can obviously, it, I think, be traced back to uh, race and, and racism. Majority of these mothers are are quite frankly black, disproportionately, mm-hmm. and and yeah. uh, folks of color. And there was also this uh, sort of mindset that oh, they they're kin of the of this you know of this child, they need to to do it on their own and, and they should just be doing it. And, you know, I mean, I, I profiled a grandmother, Ali Reeves, who would raising her 10 and 14 year old, uh, are going to be raising her 10 and 14 year old uh, grand children off of, you know, her savings. She doesn't get anything extra. And it's, you know, there is no backup plan should she die, right. In terms of who, you know, other than I guess them going to the state and, um, and she's doing this out of the, because she feels that it's the right thing to do. And yet there's no other support. And, um, you know, and, and after writing the story, there were so many you know, people who wrote checks directly to her. Um, you know, so many people, uh, there was one person who was anonymous who, uh, paid for, uh, braces for her mm-hmm. grandchild. Um, and so bringing things like that to like, you know, people who need help and are quite frankly lost in the shuffle of our society. Um, but yet shouldn't be um yeah. i think that's the thing that i look for most yeah you talk about you talk about heroes i yeah. mean you bring people yeah. <laughs> up earlier about this piece that you're doing with the gates foundation i mean that's those are stories of heroes right there i mean truly yeah i mean think about i, I mean i as a father to two young children myself a six and nine year old and i'm a 44 almost 45 year old man i sometimes wonder if i have the energy to, to do everything on a daily basis i couldn't imagine being 75 and doing that same thing. Does yeah. that give you, uh, well, I'm just curious though, hearing also about these stories of these people anonymously giving uh, gifts or uh, financial assistance and the story of the braces, does that give you hope in humanity? I feel like we so often hear the other side of things and all the bad that's <laughs> yeah. taking place. And that's the kind of stuff that often doesn't get told. And you must see a fair amount of that in your field of work. And not only because you're actually sharing these stories with everybody, but then you get to see the other side. I'm just curious, does that rekindle your hope for humanity as a whole when you see that take place? It, it does. And I don't say that, it, not to say, and it is easy to get cynical, right? And especially oh. in this business where you're we're busy for the most part covering people's failures as opposed to their successes. Yeah. Or, or, you know, yeah, it's, easier to knock, yeah, that's, yeah, it's easier to knock people down. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, you know, those are the stories, right. They get the hundred million thousand, whatever mm-hmm. retweets the, you know, yeah. story about, uh, you know, somebody delivering flowers to, uh, to somebody is it, our saving cat from the tree. Right. I mean, that isn't necessarily the, the story <laughs> that's going to set the world on fire. Right. And yet, right. I mean, that's honestly the stuff that happens, I think more on the day to day. Right. I mean, I think that's more regular. 
uh, excuse me, more frequent, I should say, than, mm-hmm. than, than some of the negative stuff, right? I mean, I think it's, uh, did you ever watch the uh, HBO series, um, True Detective, the first season? Oh, yeah, I got the first one's the best. Yeah, no, that's so Yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but at the end, yeah, well, at the end of the final line of the, 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 the miniseries, um, where he says, you know, and you know Matthew McConaughey's character sort of starts mm-hmm. out and goes on pretty cynical, I think, through through most of the mm-hmm. the series, I believe, to my recollection. But at the end, you know, even in this sort of uh, after he's faced all this daunting um, adversity and, and and trauma, really, um, you know, he's talking to Woody Harrelson at the end and, and walking side by side, and he, and he says, uh, you know, in the beginning. Uh, they say, you know, he's quoting from the Bible. He says, "In the beginning, they say there's nothing but but darkness." And he said, "Well, if you ask me, you know, the light's been winning, yeah, you, know, mm. you know." And, and that, to me, that's a, a profound statement in the sense, right? In in terms of how far we've come, right? I, I think yeah. we just get so hung up on the fact that there isn't an absence of darkness, right? That there's still things that are <laughs> that are uh, that are that are pretty, uh, you know, dark going on and in, in, in dark can darken our day and things that can darken our days. And yet we don't focus so much on the fact that there is, you know, light. And, and especially given where yeah. we started from, um, you know, that is a, that's, that's, a, that's a good, that's a small, small, but great triumph. Yeah. It, it is, you know, it's easier for people to enter the complaint zone or to focus on the, the negatives. Yeah. I, I know sometimes, I mean, I have so many things that I'm so grateful for and fortunate to have. And yet I know it's so easy to, just nitpick at the things that, that I don't have, you know? And it's like, why, yeah. why is that? Why do I, and I, I, I try, I mean, I, I try to be conscious of that and realize how good I have it. But yeah, I just think that's a bit of a human nature thing. You hear athletes talk and they always talk about how the losses hurt greater right. than the wins feel good. But the light, I mean, the light, there, there, there is plenty of it and it does win out, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So when we talked, when you and I talked, when you were interviewing me for that Gates Foundation exhibit, I believe you mentioned that you're in the process of writing a book. Wasn't it a compilation of essays that you're doing? I'm just curious if you can share a little bit about that and if there's any particular theme or message. Well, I do appreciate you allowing me to shamelessly plug it. (laughs) Plug away, my friend. (laughs) Plug away. No, it should be, it should be yeah. out in August, um, in middle in mid August. It's called uh, "Readying to Rise." It's, it's my collection of essays from the last, um, you know, six years, really. Of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, since I've, I founded the Emerald, and so you know, deals with everything from uh, social justice issues to, to um, you know, mental health to uh, community building, um, you know, to uh, social transformation and change. And so, it's really you know, for anybody who is looking for one, I say inspiration, but two, um, really wants to try to, you know, look for, for change within themselves and, and also within this world. And um, I hope, you know, by sort of sharing my own story and my own progression of and my own battles and struggles, quite frankly, um, that one, people can see themselves in that uh, in some way. And then two, um, you know, come out on the other side of it, um, you know, armed to try to uh, serve this world um, and, and try to serve this world for the better. I, I don't necessarily believe in, you know, messianic leadership or, <laughs> or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have a, a role and a part to play um, no matter where you're at and no matter what profession, no matter um, you know, how old you are or, or what skin color. And so, uh, you know, it's just really to try to um, relate to people that we are interdependently linked 
and, and that we need each other. Um, there's, uh, uh, I don't want to say, I don't think it's a great movie, but it's the last 10 minutes of it is great. <laughs> it's good where it's, uh, it's Ad Astra or Ad Astra with uh, Brad Pitt. Oh, Ad Astra. And, huh? um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's, uh, it's right at the end and, you know, he's been on this long, arduous journey and, and it's like a long slog of a three hour movie. So we've been on it with him. Uh, but he's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to find, um, you know, this this uh, particular person who's uh, you know uh, who went on this uh, quest to try to find you know uh, other life in the universe, and he and mm-hmm. he and he was unsuccessful. It ends up, and he says, and the guy has just you know been driven mad by his inability to find other life. And um, uh, Brad Pitt's character says, you know, this isn't a bad thing because now we know an answer. We know we're all we got, mm. and that is okay. And so yeah. <laughs> I think we've we've we are you know we are what we've got and and that's okay. Yep. Well, I have no doubt listening to you talk today and knowing you're a very talented journalist that this will be a, a inspirational uh, book and I think we'll probably speak to a lot of people. So, can you give us the name of that again? Yeah. So it is called Readying to Rise. Um, Readying I based to it rise. on a uh, yeah, based it on an Esperanza Spalding song, but. Um, uh, I, I, and I explained it in the forward that uh, we are all in, in this in this world that is, you know, readying to rise. Um, and but what will it? But what it will be is dependent on dependent upon our work that we do today. Mm. So I love it. Yeah, I love that. You and I spoke a little bit. We both have backgrounds in the financial <laughs> services industry. Uh, yeah. I was doing small business consulting prior to becoming a firefighter. And I know you worked in the investment world before you did return Mm -hmm. home to South Seattle and and start the South Seattle Emerald. Was there a particular moment that led you to change course and pursue the work that you're now focused upon? Or was this just something that was always in the back of your mind? I I have my things that drove me and led me to to really look inward and make a mid-career change, if you will. I'm just curious what, what led you to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I always had a uh, passion or calling for writing and, and, and storytelling. Um, uh, my, my grandfather, who I told you about, uh, he—I never met him personally, but um, you know, my father would tell me about him, and my grandmother would tell me about him. You know, he was uh, a writer in his own right, and he had—he uh, uh, had written a book, a full manuscript, spent three years of his life on it. Um, ended up sending it to uh, a publisher, didn't hear anything back. And then a year or so later, he found it, saw his book <laughs> in a bookstore, somebody else's oh, no name kidding. on it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And um, that was actually, yeah. And, and that was one of the reasons why, honestly, he sort of turned. Damn. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's heavy. And so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, life's work just gone. And so um, I don't want to call it sort of vicarious redemption or anything like that, but I had, uh, you know, just in myself, I had always wanted to kind of continue on a, a legacy of, of being able to write and, and, and being able to tell stories. That being said, I, I got to, to college and, um, uh, you know, uh, bumped up against the, the harsh realities of, of life, as my uh, advisor at this time, college advisor at the time said, and that I was a poor kid from a poor area and I needed to go into something that made money. And, you know, writing might be how I processed or whatever, and I might have been good at it, but I needed to uh, go into something that could really, uh, uh, you know, Im- impact uh, my life. And, and the best way to do that was with, uh, uh, I guess, as much money as you could 
possibly earn. And so I ended up going into finance, working in the hedge fund industry for a little bit. Um, and honestly, Ryan just got tired of the industry. I mean, you're taught basically that if you've determined that you can't make money from somebody within five minutes, you need to exit um, sometimes not so gracefully from a conversation and yeah. everything and everybody is viewed as a commodity. And, you know, ultimately that just isn't me. I, I, I didn't have that type of, uh, <laughs> nature. And quite frankly, I just didn't want to yeah. deaden my soul in order to do that. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was much more lucrative, man. I mean, you know, it, in terms of <laughs> more lucrative than, than being a journalist and you're dating yeah. the models and the Pilates instructors and sometimes at the same <laughs> uh, time. Right. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> and you're at least in the Maseratis and stuff and that's, but all mm-hmm. that glitters isn't gold at the end of the day. Yeah. And, um, all, all, you know, all those trinket, trinkets couldn't, um, amount uh, to the emptiness that was, you know, going on inside of me in that type of industry. And so, you know, I decided to, you know, abruptly shift. Um, you know, there were definitely people who called me foolish. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think, you, you know, I, have, I wanted to find purpose in life and I wanted yeah. to be a person of value, as Albert Einstein said, not just a person, not just a person of worth. And, um, you know, being at the Emerald, writing for the Seattle Times, writing various stories, um, uh, I think I found purpose. And um, that is no small thing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and we're all benefiting for that. And much more lucrative for the soul. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. My, my bank account, uh, yeah, when I look at my bank account, I'm like, I hope the soul is doing all right. No. <laughs> all right, Marcus. We are going to close things out here with what I like to call parting shots. So I want you to talk about the first thing that pops into your mind here when I ask you these questions. All right. Okay. A book or TV show or movie that you can't stop talking about. Ooh, uh, only because I am currently reading it. It it is called, uh, slavery by another name. Um, and it's for my book club. Uh, Mm. sorry, let me get the, (laughs) the, the, the author's name. Bring it up. Um, yeah, by Douglas uh, Blackman. Yeah, Slavery okay. by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II uh, by Douglas Blackman. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, history of sort of Reconstruction era uh, United mm-hmm. States history and definitely... Um, Definitely, uh, you know, bring harkens back to uh, some some things that we are still dealing with today as a society. We had to receive some diversity training at the fire department a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. department wide. And I remember uh, the woman that was teaching the class. She brought that up. She was like, "Who who founded this country? Old white men?" And just kind of went through time, century by century, and how the structures that were in place then a lot still remain. I consider myself to be a very open individual, but I hadn't really gone back through my own mind that walk down history and how that from the beginnings of the origin of this country, how some of the, so many of those institutions uh, that create a lot of issues around uh, race and uh, sexism and, and, and everything else are, are still in place. Yeah, and I say I think what sort of brings me hope, in, if you know, going back on to you know that metaphor about the there being darkness and then light is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you think about how we did start out right as as a country where it's, it's pretty much you, yeah, it's, it's, it, essentially white males had uh, all of the power, 
And you look at the 13th Amendment, right, uh, abolishing slavery. You look at the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. There wasn't one black person who voted for the 13th Amendment. Mm. And yet, right, it still <laughs> was able to pass. Mm. There wasn't one woman who voted for the 19th Amendment. Neither could at the time. And yet it passed, right? And so, and so that history, right, of uh, people advocating for and then giving up power, right, it, uh, it, it tells me that, you know, and, and I and I get it. It's, it's easy to think of this country as a hopeless one sometimes, but it tells me that there is still hope here in this country, right? Yeah. A non-living thing you cannot live without. A non-living thing. Gosh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I. Uh, I don't. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I guess that would just be um, my my favorite. You know pair of, of, of pajama bottoms which are uh <laughs> sort of, they got they got the superman emblem on them that were you know given to me by by a friend and I, i've had them for the last 10 years and i don't know if they're my comfort buddy when i go to sleep or something but i yeah i gotta uh, those are the things that i gotta wear it's, uh, uh, you know try to explain try to explaining that to, to to you know the the you know, person who's you know sharing your bed with you. that's right anyway. that's right yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh if you were not a journalist, author, writer, you would be doing what for your life's work? Uh, probably a librarian, I guess. I don't mm. know. At least, at least that way I could be around, you know, yeah. <laughs> books and journalists and, and authors. So um, there you go. Okay. We'll take it. That's acceptable. <laughs> That's a different field. All right. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, you were happiest when? In the company of, of close friends and family and in the company of Kubota Garden. Oh, nice. I like that. Okay, you have to do something you're scared to do. How do you quiet that fear and proceed anyways? I tell myself uh, that it's okay to feel fear. It's okay to be scared, but it's not okay to be afraid. And I try to unpack that fear, right? Of like, okay, what's the worst that could possibly happen? What is the worst case scenario? Is it, I, I write a, a column that somebody doesn't like. Okay, well, let's unpack that. What, what don't, the worst thing that happens is I get, you know, a ton of Twitter trolls on Twitter and I get, you know, angry emails and I from, guess what? Most of the time I don't know most of those people. Yep. They really won't have an impact on my day. And the next hour they'll be on to whatever Kim Kardashian and Kanye are doing in their divorce settlement. So, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, whatever. Let's continue to do this thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's the saying? Those that care don't matter and those that matter don't care. Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, as you know, the title of this podcast is The Bravest Kind. What does being brave mean to you? I think it's the highest human action. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that because uh, I think back to something that really resonated with me. I was a huge Game of Thrones fan. Well, yeah. at least the seven, first seven seasons. <laughs> you and everyone um, else, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know if this line is either in the books or it's in the um, in the early seasons of, of the series, but he talks. Uh, one of the characters talks about um, being brave and he says, because uh, he's talking to his son, and he says, uh, "He says, Dad, I'm, I'm I'm scared." And he says, "That's good. That's really good. Because the only time you can be brave is when you are scared, or you are fearful, or you are, um, 
or you have a tremendous anxiety and, and we're facing tremendous adversity. And in that space, that's the bravery is the decision to act, right? It's the decision to overcome uh, those feelings. Um, and I think for me, yeah, it's with being, having bipolar disorder, with having other, um, you know, some of the other things that I've sort of been through in my life and, and been very vocal about, hell, I mean, just putting <laughs> myself out there every month mm-hmm. in the Seattle Times, mm-hmm. um, as you know, and, and, and even though these are reported columns and so forth, uh, you know, I, I do inject my opinion, you know, as my job as a columnist and, and it can be frightening. Um, I just try to remember that, right. That the, that, that fear is a prerequisite for bravery. And so, and, and bravery to me is the, uh, the ultimate, you know, human ex- expression in, in terms of um, being able to, to sort of overcome is this very anim- animalistic reflex of of, uh, of our flight or, or fight response. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's what it is to me. Beautiful. Well, Marcus Harrison Green, you're extremely <laughs> brave. You're an inspiration. Uh, thank you for your time today and for getting so raw and honest with me and just continue what you're doing. I'll be looking for your book when that gets published. I can't wait to, I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much and continue. Yeah. Just continue doing all the great work you're doing, man. I think uh, we as humans and as a society, we're all beneficial of um, yourself doing the work that you're doing. So thank you. Hey, same Ryan. And just thank you so much for having me, man. And, and just to, to tell you, you're definitely one of the real heroes of our society. I think, you know, the word heroism is sort of uh, extravagantly used sometimes, but uh, it, it definitely fits with, with what you, you do in your profession, man. So it's just an honor to be here today. Well, likewise, it's an honor talking with you and uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you. Absolutely. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanschaefer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. (laughs) 